You know, the journey that we just went on um, is from two different perspectives. The first was that of a dad, and it's one that I know well. I've got four kids, two of them, soon to be three of them are teenagers. And as I was watching the drama, I, I feel like I feel that way every week where I'm just wondering, I hope it's enough because I just feel like I don't measure up. And there's something that happens each week where it's kind of like I'm just discouraged. I hang my head and I just go, man, this is so hard knowing what to do and the right way to do it and say the right things at all the right times. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about Keith, who just did the drama, it's my little brother, and he kind of wrote about our story. It's like I, I didn't have a dad growing up just like he didn't. I didn't really know my dad ever, and so it's like I didn't have a great example of how to do this parenting thing. And so it's like I resonate with this whole idea of going, man, I hope it's enough. I hope I'm giving my kids what they need. I hope that my shortcomings don't jack my kids up too bad, right? Because I know I'm jacking them up. I just hope it's not terrible um, and that they struggle the rest of their life because of it. But then through the song, after the drama, we get to see the dad through a kid's eye. And it's always different. It's always different where I'm telling you, uh, kids see us, I'm speaking as an adult and as a dad, kids see us as a hero more than we think. They don't communicate it very well, especially teenagers, they don't really at all. Um, but at some point in their life, there's usually a time where they come back and go, oh my goodness, I know it happened to me at 23 years old, oh my goodness. All that you did for me, mom, because my mom did most of the raising, but it hit me. And she's always had that place. Dads always have that place. So to your children, you kind of are a hero, parents and dads especially. And then when you look through the lens of a biblical worldview, you realize that not only did God choose to give you the kids that he gave you, but he, always, he also chose to give them you as a dad. Got to realize God's choice goes both ways. He chose you to be their dad because you were the right one for them when you look through a biblical worldview. And so I want to ask all the dads in here to stand up. Just all dads, stand up. I'm not going to put you on the spot except for a couple of you. I'm just kidding. Just stand up. I'm not going to call you out or anything. But all dads, stand up for me. And um, I want to say a few things to you while I've got you standing. Um, and the first is this. You are amazing men. You are amazing men. See, so often as dads, and you know this, it's like we don't, we don't get thanked a whole lot, and that's okay. But what we tend to get more than encouragement is critique. We get critiqued at work, and then sometimes we come home because we're not getting stuff done there. We get critiqued at home, and it's really hard to feel um, appreciated at times. And so we don't get thanked that often. And so I just want to say, you're amazing men. Thank you for what you've done, what you're doing. Nobody understands the way you carry the burden of being a father. But you, you know, even other dads can understand how you carry your burden. So you're amazing, men. Secondly, is this, you have father power. I don't know if you know this, but you have father power. And what father power is, is you have a very special place in your kids' lives. And you have a power into their soul and into their mindset and into their future that no one else has on this planet. You have father power. You have an influence that was given to you by God. And it lasts for the entire life of your child and you. You're the only dad they have. You're the only one that can give them a father's words. You have father power. And then one last thing I want to say to you is it really is just a challenge to every man and dad in here to step up and become the man and the dad that God has created you to be and has always dreamed you could be. Pursue 
becoming the best version of yourself with God's help that you possibly can because the effects of doing that will last for generations. And we're going to get into that a little bit in just a few minutes. But before we do anything else, I want to pray over you and for me as a dad. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the men that are standing right now. Lord, I pray that you would um, encourage them right now where they're at. Wrap your arms around them. Let them know how loved they are by you. God, I pray for strength for the men standing here as dads specifically. God, give us strength to lead our families well, to lead our children well. Give us wisdom to speak just the right words into each one of our children so that they get what they need from the only person they can get, and that is their father. The only one they can get father power and father words from is us. God, give us the wisdom to speak to them exactly what they need to hear. Lord, I pray that you would give us patience as we're raising kids for their whole life. Give us patience, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would give us direction, give us guidance, show us how to live our lives so that we might raise up this next generation and this next generation would be absolute world changers. God, I thank you for the role of father that you've given to each one of us. I thank you that we get to be dads. I thank you that you handpicked us to be our children's father. And God, help us to grow into and become the best version of ourselves that you created us to be with your help. In your holy name, amen. All right, let's give these guys a hand, can we? Yes, thank you guys. You guys go ahead and have a seat. Thank you for standing up with me there. So last week, we started a new series called Bringing Down the House, all about family, and we acknowledge something that's true of all of us. It's kind of a foundational idea, and it's this. Our families aren't perfect, okay? I know newsflash. Our families aren't perfect. Your family's not perfect. My family sure isn't perfect because I'm the dad. Um, we're, our families aren't perfect. In fact, what I want to do is I want to just show you how imperfect our families through, are, are through a few awkward family photos that I found. I don't know if you've ever gone online and just gone on one of those streams where you're just looking at people. You're going, really? You really did that in front of a camera, a paid camera person? Um, so I thought I would just show you a couple of snapshots of how imperfect families can be. This first one is just about us parents. Sometimes we get a little overzealous when we are taking family pictures. And so here's a picture of one family just being a little overzealous and celebrating and making a fun family picture. I think that's hilarious to me. <laughs> I just wish they had the picture after the kid hit the ground because you know that kid hit the ground. I don't know if it was on his head or not. Um, but the, the second one is, is just kind of like this. Kids can't fake it like us adults can. I know the parents wanted what is in this picture, but the kids couldn't pull it off. And here's the next one. Perfect family photos. Um, the parents, they wanted some joy. And the kids are like, no, not happening today. And that's just the reality, right? Kids can't fake it like adults can. Um, this next one is why you should never take a diaper off when you're doing a family photo with a baby. And so let's go ahead and look at that one. This is one of my favorite ones. I love that. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Um, the next one is just a little awkward. Um, it's a clothing optional shot of the dad. I think the dad did, was like not excited about taking pictures, so he said, fine, if I'm going to have to take family pictures, I'm not wearing a shirt. So check it out. You do not want to get this on a family Christmas card, right, at all. Like, who does that? 
Anyways, um, but, but, but not to be outdone, there's another family that this should never be repeated again in the history of all of humanity. Let's look at this one. Um, hopefully this will never happen again. I know, right? <laughs> uh, and then this last one's one of my favorite ones, and it's not because of what's happening in the picture. Let's go ahead and put the picture up because the picture's funny. Don't take pictures with your baby not having a diaper on. The best part of this picture is look at the dog's face. <laughs> The dog is literally like going, really? This is my family. And he's just looking at us like, can you believe this? I just love that. Oh, man. But, but it's all kidding aside, um, our families aren't perfect. And because of that, we all carry some baggage from our families. Families are, it's one of the most difficult and most rewarding parts of life. However, many of our expectations of what the ideal family should look like just aren't the reality of our family. I don't know if it's like that for you, but I know for me growing up, and, and even now, it's like this ideal family that I have in my mind, we just seem to fall short of the mark that I see, and that's part of the reason, because of how we grew up and the way our families were, it's part of the reason the terms father, mother, son, daughter, they are never emotionally neutral. They all come with an emotion with them, some good, some bad, because the parts of yourself that you are most proud of are all attached, many of them are attached in large part to how you were raised and how you're, like the family that you came from. And also on the flip side, the parts of yourself that make you feel most inadequate are also tied to that same family. And what's interesting is it's connected especially to dads. It's really connected to dads. Like I said earlier, there's a power to the role of father. Um, years ago, I was reading in the Old Testament in First and Second Kings, and it just hit me how powerful this father dynamic is. Um, in First and Second Kings, it's the story of Israel's decline, um, and, and it gives us a complete list of kings um, from the time of King David, 455 years of kings. It gives us king after king after king, all the way to where um, Israel and Judah were kind of broken up and, and kind of went throughout the world, um, and they were in decline pretty much the whole time. Well, here's why. During that time, there were 39 rulers. Rulers, 38 kings, one queen between the two nations of Israel and Judah. And with each king, there's a brief description of his reign as king. And as I was reading through this, and I'm just going to say this, reading through, I was reading through the Bible in a year. I, I usually, it takes me about two years to read through the Bible, and I try and do it every two to three years. I try and just kind of keep an ongoing thing. Reading through parts of the Bible, let me just let some of you off the hook. As a pastor, reading through parts of the Bible is really hard, okay? It's just difficult. It's boring. There's parts of it that are really boring. Even when you know why it's in there, you're just kind of like, can we get through to the next part? Well, First and Second Kings is kind of one of those areas because it's just king, brief description of reign, next king, brief description of their reign, king, next, you know, little brief description of their reign. But I'm reading through this and these, there's three words that just started jumping off of the page at me um, it, because with almost every new king, which was usually this, the son of the king before, these three words ended up in the description of his reign as king. And these three words were like his father. Like his father. As each king succeeded the father, those three words almost every time are used to explain the reason he ruled the kingdom like he did. And here's what's fascinating, because I started seeing this going on and on. I flipped back to find out in 39 successions of kings, only five times did the son not follow in the father's footsteps, most often doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Only five 
broke the generational pattern that he was handed. And it reads like this. I'll read you three generations. Nadab, like his father, did evil in the sight of the Lord. His son Basha, like his father, did evil in the sight of the Lord. His son Zimri, like his father, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it goes on and on and on. Almost all of them did evil in the sight of the Lord until you get to a young man named Joash. You can read about him in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles. The Bible says that Joash didn't follow in the footsteps of his father. He actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And this is so powerful. I mean, when you realize this, and it's, it, this is the interesting thing about the Bible, right in the middle of reading boring stuff, stuff can jump out and go, oh my gosh, this is life-changing. Joash broke the pattern set by his father, and he followed God. And after Joash came five generations, five successors to the throne, did what was right in the eyes of God. Five generations were impacted because one dad chose to follow God and not follow in his footsteps and be like his father. And I will just say this. Men, if you are willing to follow Jesus with your whole life, if you are willing to engage with God and live your life for him, if you are willing to get engaged in the life of the church and the life of this church and serve God here and outside of these walls and in your neighborhood, um, get involved in small groups and serving teams and live your life um, following Jesus Christ, if you are willing to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, it could impact the next five generations of your family. That's how powerful your role is as a dad. So often we're so short-sighted, we don't realize that what you're doing right now and how you're living and the choices you're making will have a ripple effect for generations. I'm guilty of being that short-sighted that I don't understand. I forget. That's why as a church, and I'll just tell you this, I, we believe reaching men is so important to this church. Like we are, we will do anything we can to reach men and have men walking out of here going, I want to go back. And here's why. I'm going to just let you in on a secret behind what we do. This is a little bitty bit of the secret sauce that makes Kensington. The statistics were updated in 2016. If the woman in a family becomes a Christian, 17% of families become a Christian with her, which is incredible. If the man of the family becomes a Christian, 93% of families follow him. And so we know if we want to reach families, which is what we want to do, it starts with his heart. We want to capture him. Man, your young sons and daughters are going to be following in your footsteps whether you like it or not. They're going to be following in your footsteps. They are looking to you to be the man that God intended you to be when he created you. Now, does a woman impact her family for generations? Absolutely, because the husband and wife are a team, uh, and women, women absolutely have impact that's felt in ripples for generations. But there's a special role that men have in the family that only they can fulfill. I know that my kids at some point are going to do life like their father. And I'm excited about that and terrified at the same time. The things that I look at in my life that I hope my kids pick up are my incredibly good looks. I'm just kidding. They got that. <laughs> All right. Um, 
No, I, I hope they pick up my work ethic. I hope they pick up my sense of awesome dad humor. I hope they pick that up because that's really fun. Um, I hope they pick up my desire to treat Melissa uh, like the incredible woman that she is for their spouse, spouses someday. Um, I, I hope that, that, that they pick up my sense of adventure and fun. Like I want them to pick those things up and do that like their father. What I hope they don't pick up is the critical spirit that I have sometimes. I hope they don't pick up my critical spirit. I hope they don't pick up my desire to be right all the time, you know, which I'm getting better at, by the way. Um, I, I actually hope they don't pick up my awesome sense of dad humor at times, you know. Um, I hope they don't pick up my, my, my enjoyment in arguing for the sake of arguing. Uh, I hope they don't pick up my driving habits, okay? Middle name Andretti, just, just going to put it out there. Um, but over, over all the things I listed, um, what I hope I can give them is a sense of how important and impactful a relationship with Jesus is. That's just what I hope I can give them, that following God wherever he leaves, wherever he leads is the most important decision that they will ever make in their life, and it will be impactful for generations. That's my hope. And the best way that I know how to do that, and we're going to talk about it right now, the best way that I know how to impart that into my kids is to make sure that my sense of identity, my sense of who I am comes straight from the heart of God. It's the only way I know how to do that. And that's why I kind of want to answer this question as I want to ask and hopefully answer is this. Where do we find our identity as a man or a father? Now, women, this is for you as well. I'm just speaking from a man's point of view. It's Father's Day. I'm a dude, okay? That's what I'm going to do. Um, but this is really true of any of us. Where do we find our sense of identity? And here's the overarching principle for families. Why does this matter? As parents, we parent from our identity and our families follow suit. We parent from our sense of identity. Our families take on our identities. So where we get our identity from is a massive deal. And maybe you're here and you're going, man, we talk about this identity thing. Like we just talked about it like three or four weeks ago. And I'll just tell you, I try and mention it and regularly bring it up because this is one of the things that runs in the background of our lives subconsciously. It's like the operating system of a computer. It's like an operating system of your phone. It's the foundation of our decision-making, our identity. Every decision we make runs through our identity. Um, how we treat people, every, the way we treat people runs through that identity. The way we see the world runs through our identity. How we raise our families comes out of the identity that we have. And because it runs in the background, we need to regularly be reminded to think about it. We need to make sure that we get our sense of identity from God and not anyone or anything else. Here's why. God wired you up and wired me up to be told who we are from outside of ourselves. He did this on purpose so that he could be the one to tell us who we are. But what that means is, is when it comes to finding our identity, our sense of who we are, we only get it from two places. There's only two places you can get your sense of identity um, from. Our identity comes from either the creator or the creation. That's it. Those are the only two options of where you're going to get your sense of identity, creator or creation. Most of us allow the creation to tell us who we are and not the creator. Anytime we find our identity from anything or anyone other than God, we will live for identity rather than from identity. I want to make a very big distinction between these two. If our identity does not come from the creator but from the creation... We will chase after the creation. We will chase after money, fame, titles, respect, power, success, achievements, good looks, status, 
pleasure, and those things where we get our sense of worth from and identity from, we will live for those things. We will chase after them day in and day out, and then so will our families. If you live for identity, to earn identity, to grab identity from the creation, you will become consumed with achieving, with striving, with scorekeeping, with performance, and stepping on the people around you to get ahead on accumulating wealth and stuff and believing the lie that all of those things will make you happy and make you more of a person. And we will inadvertently teach our kids to do the same thing if we live for identity rather than from it. I also think why so many of us are messed up from our families is because we never transitioned from getting our sense of identity from what our father or mother told us we were or said to us and transitioned to hearing it and getting it from God. I have met people in their 50s and 60s who are still trying to prove their mom and dad wrong because of the identity they were given when they were a teenager from them. And they never transitioned from getting their identity from creation to the creator. So we need to change our perspective and change where we get our sense of identity. We need to upgrade our operating system. We basically need to go from Android <laughs> to OS. Sorry for you Android people. It's just the truth. It's all I share is the truth. No, here's God's dream and his hope and his desire is that rather than living for identity, God's dream is that we would live from our identity. Not live for it, trying to achieve and get and earn an identity, but live from the identity that he has already given to us that he wants to give us. And I'll tell you what, when you live from the identity that God gives you, it means zero comparisons. You can actually look online at Instagram and you can look online at Facebook and not feel that sense of I am terrible and other people are great and I need to be more like them. You can actually look at that and not compare yourself to their families and everything that they put up there that's perfect and photoshopped and not real, right? Living from the identity God gives you means listening to one voice, and that is God's voice. Living from identity that God gives you means that winning is about revealing the character of Christ to a world that desperately needs him. That's, where win that's winning when your sense of identity comes from Jesus. So I want to give you three statements that I believe can help you and me find our identity in Jesus and help us live from that identity. And they're found in a passage in a book in the Bible called 1 Timothy, written by a man named Paul. And why I'm using this passage, and it's from Paul, is because Paul went through the transition that we're talking about right now. Paul's identity, um, before meeting Jesus, he lived for his identity. As a religious leader, he was a Pharisee for many years. He followed every rule in the Torah, the, which was the Bible at the time. Um, he looked down on those people who didn't. They were beneath him. His identity was wrapped up in his position and his accomplishments and how he compared to all the other Pharisees. Because he say, I used to be the Pharisee of all Pharisees. I was like the number one of the, of the, of the religious people. He was anti-Jesus and anti-Jesus' followers. He, went, he even went to the extent of hunting down and killing and imprisoners, imprisoning followers of Jesus because they preached against the religious rules and regulations that Paul used to get his identity from. Do you realize that? What the religious leaders had done is all of their identity was wrapped up in following the rules and being powerful and being number one or two and being better than everyone else. Their entire identity was from that. Well, here comes Jesus, and Jesus is saying, that's a bunch of crud. 
He's like, that is, that is weak. That is not what God wants. And so he's tearing down where their identity is coming from. So Paul is absolutely against him. His identity, his operating system was all about success, being religious, the best rule follower, looking down on other people until he met Jesus. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he reveals himself to Paul while Paul is on the road going to a town called Damascus. And that encounter changes his life. And the biggest thing that Jesus changed for Paul was the scoreboard. Jesus just completely changed the scoreboard for Paul. He changed what really mattered. He changed where Paul got his identity from, switched over his operating system. And Paul ends up writing most of the New Testament, becoming one of the most prolific church planners of all times. And we read in, first, in, in, the, in the Bible, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. And a lot of his writing is letters to the Christian churches that he had started along his travels. And so I want to read this passage to you written by Paul who used to live for his identity and transitioned to living from his identity in Christ. And I want to read a, a passage. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then I'm going to pull three uh, statements out of it that we're going to talk about. 1 Timothy 1, 14 to 16. Paul writes, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And the first phrase that speaks into our identity in Christ is something that all of us need to get to if we're going to live from the identity that God wants to give us. And that is this statement, I am undeniably broken. I am undeniably broken. Verse 15, Christ, this is Paul writing, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul comes out and says it. He's like, hey, that sin thing, that choosing your own way over God's way, I'm the worst one. If there were a line of sinners and the worst sinner was in front and then we went all the way down, the person who sins the least, he's like, I'm the first one in line. I'm the worst one. I'm fighting with Kevin Valentine for that spot. Like that's what Paul is writing here. He's saying, I'm broken. I can't seem to get on top of it. This is one of the greatest church leaders that, that the church has ever known. And here he is saying, I am a mess. I can't seem to change. I can't seem to become anything different than what I am. And what is he saying? He's like, we're horribly broken people. Why? By our choices some of the time and our circumstances of our lives. And we carry our hurts and our scars on our sleeves sometimes that remind us of our imperfections. And I'll just tell you, for men, this is a tough one, right? We are taught growing up, like, you just hide every imperfection you got. You don't ever say you don't know anything. You don't ever fail. And if you do fail, cover it up and make it look like a win. Like, we're just taught that because we, we do not like to admit our faults and our failures. But here's what's interesting for Paul. Once he accepted Jesus, he was liberated from hiding liberated. He was able to be real. He was able to be honest. And I'll just tell you, why is it so important to admit that we're broken? Because until you admit that you are broken, you don't need a savior. You realize that? Until you realize that you're broken and you, you are a sinner, so to speak, as Paul speaks, until you realize that and can admit it, you don't need a savior. You don't need Jesus until you come clean and admit your brokenness. You don't need God. You don't need forgiveness. You don't need renewal. You don't need the renovation of the Holy Spirit in your life until you get to the point of realizing that it's undeniable. 
I'm broken. One of the first ways of starting to change your operating system and actually live from the identity that God gives you is the ability to just go, I'm undeniably broken. And I'll just tell you, if you think that to be a Christian, you have to have it all together, you don't. God's not interested in you being perfect. God is interested in you being redeemed. God's not interested in you never committing another sin in your life. He's, he's, he's interested in you receiving his forgiveness fully for everything that you've ever done in your past, you're currently doing, and you're ever going to do. And I'll just tell you at this church, I don't want to be a part of a church where a bunch of people run around pretending like they're perfect. I just don't want to be a part of a church like that. I grew up in churches like that. I'm just telling you, when we showed up at church um, in the mornings when I was growing up, it did not matter how bad the fighting was going on. And we would fight literally until the car was turned off and the last words were spoken or somebody happened to open a door. Because once the door opened, man, like this force field went up and all that came out of there was like, like rainbows, puppy dogs, sunshine. Like we were happy. We were perfect family. We walked in holding hands. Literally, we were just hitting each other in the car. But when we get out of church, for some reason, we think we got to be perfect now we got to play the game. I don't ever want us to be a church like that. That's why one of our church's values is from brokenness. That's a value of ours, from brokenness. And the way it reads is, in response to our identity in Christ, we receive and reveal our weaknesses to point to the power of God. And I'll just tell you, especially you men in there, in here, when you and I can admit and embrace our brokenness, there is freedom that comes from inside because you don't have to play the game anymore. You can admit your faults. You can go, yep, I did that. Yep, that was, a, that was a poor choice of words. That was a poor choice of action. I shouldn't have done that. And you can actually admit that you have struggles. You can actually admit that you do things wrong. And I know for me, that's one of the, th the things that I love about being at a church like ours. I don't have to be perfect as a pastor. But everybody expects a pastor to be perfect. I don't feel like I have to be that here. I feel like I can just be myself. And that is about as imperfect as they come. I struggle with everything that every guy struggles with and every person struggles with. I struggle with the same sin nature that everyone else does. And I don't have to pretend I'm something that I'm not. Why? Because I'm undeniably broken. And if you come here, you're following a leader of a church that is undeniably broken. And it's freeing when you get to that point. That's part of changing that operating system, which gets to the second statement that can help us find our identity from God and in God. It's understanding and receiving this truth that I am unconditionally loved. I might be undeniably broken, but I am unconditionally loved. Paul writes, verse 16, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We don't have to strive to be loved and fall into the approval trap when it comes to our Heavenly Father. We don't have to worry, because sometimes we do, that if things go bad in our life, we don't have to worry if that, oh no, God's mad at me. Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah, yeah like, be honest. Like, how many of we felt like something bad went on in our life, and we're just like, oh no. God's withdrawing His love. He doesn't love me anymore. But when you realize that you're unconditionally loved, you don't have to try and impress God. He will love you no matter what you do. You don't have to do the right thing every time or he's going to pull it back. The death of, the, of Jesus on the cross literally said to humanity, you are loved unconditionally. I gave it all up for you and it's past tense because it's already been done. God showed us our worth. God showed you your worth to him. Tim Keller, he's a prolific author, one of my favorite um, speakers. He's a pastor at a church in New York. He explains the gospel in the best way I've ever heard it, and you might have heard it before, but this is what he, he writes. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. 
Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Isn't that incredible? You know what he's really saying? He's like, look, you're way worse than you think you are. <laughs> you just are. You think you're a mess? No, you're really a mess. But you're also at the same time more loved than you can ever dream by your creator who knew you before you were in your mother's womb, who dreamed up how he was going to put your DNA together, the personality he was going to give you, the family he was going to put you into. You're more loved by him than you ever hope. You're loved by anybody. I'm just telling you what a great definition of the gospel. I have one last phrase. Um, before I give it to you, we're going to receive our offering. So ushers, if you guys can go ahead and come on down. And I just want to say thank you to those of you that, that give regularly and um, are part of the journey and the mission that we're on. Uh, you know, as we come into budget year end, we're like kind of hoping we can hit the mark. And so thank you for giving generously. For those of you that are here for the first time um, and, or you're visiting, let the basket go by you. Um, I don't want you to feel any, uh, just anything during this moment other than just realizing this is the only part of the service that's not for you. Let the basket go on by you. So let me give you this last phrase. If you and I are going to change the operating system, the identity that we live from, I'm undeniably broken, I'm unconditionally loved, and I am unapologetically Christ's. Verse 16, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Paul's like, just remember, so that in me, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And this one is all about helping other people find their identity in Jesus Christ. Because let me just tell you, you are never the end of the gospel. The gospel always finds you on its way to somebody else. So when you become unapologetically Christ's, your life in part becomes helping other people find their identity in Jesus just like you did. It's taking on his mission to reach the world and tell them about God and his love displayed through Jesus, living in such a way that it displays who God is to our families, in our homes, and then in our workplaces and in our communities. And I'll just tell you, when you live from the identity of Jesus Christ, who says you are my son and my daughter, I died for you, I love you, and I would do it again if I had to, when you live from that, you can learn to be unashamed about being a follower of and you can le learn to be unapologetically Christ. And I'll just say this. Can you imagine a home, a family, a household where all members of the family live from their identity in Christ rather than for the identity of the creation? Can you imagine a family, your family, where you no longer have to achieve to be accepted? You no longer have to strive to be loved. And you no longer have to work to be valued. It's what it can be like when all members of a family are rooted in Christ and realize that every other member in the family is broken as well. Because we like to point out other people's brokenness, not our own. And I was telling my kids literally two nights ago, total dad thing. Like, you know, when you point at somebody, three fingers are pointing back at you. I'm like, yeah, that's a dad thing, but it's also true. Because we like to see everybody else's brokenness rather than our own. But when you're in a family system, everyone gets their identity from Christ. You can look and go, yep, they're just as broken as me. So I'm going to give grace just like God gave me.
Imagine a family like that. Imagine a family where you realize everyone's just as loved as you are by God, where everyone is unapologetically Christ and living that way. That's the kind of family, I'll just tell you, that, that not only do you want to be a part of, that's the kind of family that God can use to change the world and change generations to come. And that's what he wants for you, and that's what he wants for me. And I'll tell you where it starts. All of that starts with a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All of that starts with accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so what I want to do, because I know there's some of you here, you have not crossed that line of faith, but today's your day. Maybe you can come in for a little while and you're like, man, I, it, I'm going to do it today. I've, I've been, God's been nudging me, been pressing on my heart. Every time this happens, I know I need to and I haven't yet. Maybe today's your day or maybe for the first time you're going, I want to start a relationship with God because I want to get my identity from him and not live for the identity that the world and creation gives me. You start that by stepping across the line of faith and inviting Jesus into your life. And so if you have never done that, I want to give you the opportunity to right now. But everybody in here, just bow your head and close your eyes with me. I'll just say this, if you're ready to invite Jesus in, um, if you want to be transformed today, just repeat after me, make my words your words. You don't have to say them out loud, just say them from your heart to God. And you can just say this, God, I want to thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world. I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sins and rose again. I place my faith and my trust in him. I pray that you'll forgive me of my sins. And I pray that you will give me the gift of eternal life. Help me face all the challenges I'm up against. God, I surrender my life to you. In your holy name.